and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Stacey Harris, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. This week, we are lucky to have Sophie Constantinou, one of our paediatric trainees, with our third clinical exam revision podcast. I really wish I had these when I was doing my exam. They are jam-packed with tips, techniques and information around the examination to help you prepare. For those of you new to the format, Sophie has recorded some top tips from paediatric trainees. Then she'll go through the process of doing the abdominal examination and then a series of focus on, which are specific clinical findings that you may come across during the examination. That's enough from me. Let's get started. Hello everyone, I'm Sophie and welcome to this revision podcast for the MRCPCH clinical exam. Episode 3 is on the abdominal station. So each episode we focus on one potential station in the clinical exam and this week it's abdo. As always we're going to start with our top tips. After that we're going to go over the structure of the clinical exam itself. Then we're going to focus on some key areas of the abdominal examination which this week are scars, organomegaly, obesity, glycogen storage disorders, portal hypertension and cirrhosis. You can test your knowledge with our pub quiz episode on the abdominal exam as well as downloading a PDF of the key points from this episode on the website. Okay, so what are our top tips for the abdo exam? Okay, so it's always important to make sure you roll the patient over to check the back, make sure you're not missing any scars, any tenderness, or any other, any other clues. Yeah. And what was your other tip? Um, <laughs> always make sure to check the genitals. It's certainly a place that's easy to forget, or sometimes people un- feel uncomfortable doing it naturally, but really important um, in abdominal pathology, um, and yeah, important not to miss. So my hint or tip for an abdominal examination, which actually applies to any examination, but it's easy to do an exam- abdominal examination, is to listen with a stethoscope for a much longer than you need to hear bell sounds because it can take 20-30 seconds before you can hear bell sounds in a normal baby but in reality you normally hear them in about two seconds and then you use that time as thinking time for presenting your thoughts but looking you look to the examiner like you're still listening for bell sounds whereas actually you're thinking uh, and you're just reviewing your mind what you're going to say so then when you do say it you say it in a uh, a logical and confident manner right so let's spend a few minutes going over the structure of the abdominal exam we're going to start from the beginning so from a general inspection but remember that in the exam they may only ask you to focus on one or two aspects of the examination so just make sure you're doing what's asked of you and if you're not sure just check with the examiner to start with It's wiper. Wash your hands, introduce yourself, ask for permission from the patient and the parent, expose the patient, which for the abdo exam should really be from the iliac crest up, make sure that you maintain patient dignity at the same time. I tend to start with the patient at 45 degrees and then when I'm getting down to inspection of the abdomen, I lie the patient flat at that point. Remember, always, always ask the patient if they've got any pain in their tummy at the start of their exam. And double check that with the parents as well. 
So the next is the traditional inspection, palpation, percussion and auscultation. So first we're going to have a good look. Have a look around the room. Can you see any home NG feeds or medications such as Creon lying around? Then have a good look at your patient from the end of the bed. Does the child look well or ill? Can you see any obvious evidence of dysmorphism? Do they have an NG tube or an IV cannula or central line access? Comment on their nutritional status. Do they look appropriately grown for their age or are they quite small? Then move closer and inspect your patient's hands. I tend to have a feel to see if they're cool or warm and then I inspect for clubbing and leukonychia and coilonychia and ask the patient to turn their hands over and inspect for pale palms and also as I work my way up the arm look for muscle bulk. In addition as you're moving up the arm you want to examine for tendons and thoma on the extensor surfaces and you may at this point find a fistula. Next up have a look at your patient's face. Take a look in their eyes for conjunctival pallor. Have a look in their mouth. In particular you might find the pigmentation of Poitiers disease around the lips and in the mouth or rarely you may find ulcers in Crohn's disease. Inspect the tongue for glossitis in B12 deficiency and you may find angular stomatitis or colitis in iron deficiency anemia. We're not very good at looking at teeth and teeth are a really good indication of general nutrition. If you inspect in the mouth for the teeth and you find dental caries at the back of the mouth, this may suggest that the child's got gastroesophageal reflux disease. If you're finding them at the front, this may just be because they've got a poor diet. I always inspect behind the ears in the abdominal examination for a VP shunt, as that is one of the causes of an abdominal scar. And in general, inspect the patient's face shape. Do they have a rounded face as a side effect of steroids? Then you're moving down to inspect the precordium and chest. Does the patient have any scars, spider nevi or gynecomastia? They may also have a central line or portocath that you can see visible. Then I would lie the patient flat and inspect the abdomen. Make a show of sitting the patient forwards and looking at their back to look for scars. We've actually got a little diagram of the abdomen and all the different scars that you may find in paediatric patients on the website, as well as an unlabeled version that you can use for your revision if it's helpful. You may also find an umbilical hernia or some abnormal vessels such as a caput medusae. The abdomen may be generally distended, at which point you want to think about ascites. You might find bruising from iron injections, masses in the pelvic region. You may also see a stoma or tubes. So then we're at palpation. So you do two rounds of palpation, superficial and deep. And I always double check about patient's pain at this point. Start in the area which is least tender and palpate around your nine areas. I find it best to kneel or crouch down in paediatrics just because I don't want to be hovering over the child as it can be intimidating for some. Keep your eye on the patient's face to make sure that you're not causing them any pain or ask them. And then you palpate for liver and spleen, ideally with asking the patient to breathe in and out and moving your hand on their expiratory breath. But if your patient is little, you'll just have to try and time this with their breathing. Then blot for the kidneys. If at any point during palpation you find a mass in an unexpected place, go back 
and try and delineate its outlines and define its character. It might be a liver transplant or a kidney transplant. And you may also sometimes rarely get other transplanted objects within the abdomen, such as a pacemaker. So then we're at percussion. So you percuss for the liver and spleen and make sure that you get into the habit early on in your revision of starting right down in the right alec fossa and going upwards for the liver and around and under the belly button for the spleen. If you need to, you can obviously percuss for suprapubic dullness or if you find a mass, you want to percuss just to see if that's dull too. I don't routinely percuss the upper border of the liver unless I'm finding that the liver is enlarged. And that's only because I feel like it's not going to add to my clinical examination. If the liver is enlarged, it is important to percuss the upper border because you want to know why you're feeling the liver. Are you feeling it because one, it's being pushed down by an overexplanded lung or two, is, is it just an inherently large liver? Also, I don't routinely percuss for shifting dullness unless there is abdominal distension or if I'm concerned that the patient might have a renal issue. So then you're moving on to auscultation and obviously this is for bowel sounds for up to 30 seconds. I would tend to use this as a little pause to try and gather my thoughts before presenting my findings to the examiner. So then you're done, you're finished, thank your patient, wash your hands, take your stethoscope off and turn to face the examiner and say, to complete my examination, I would like to measure the heart rate, blood pressure, examine the external genitalia and hernial orifices and plot the height and weight on an appropriate chart. In this section, you can name anything you didn't manage to fit into the exam. And a key thing is you must not forget the height and weight in the ABDO exam. Then present your findings to the examiner and that leaves you with three minutes with the examiner to ask you questions. So that completes the structure of the abdominal examination. So next up is our focused on sections. Focus on scars. So we're not going to go over scars individually as really what you need is a picture and we've put a picture on the worksheet on the website for you, including an unlabeled version that you can use for your revision. General principles of scars remain the same for all the examinations that you might be doing. So describe the location, the size and give a range of differentials for what could have caused that particular scar. Just remember that in abdominal stations, the children who've undergone a midline laparotomy, these scars may be transverse or they might be vertical. And that just depends on the surgical preference and whether the surgery was done when the child was very little or a neonate. In an ideal world, you want to try and list two or three reasons for a particular scar when asked by the examiner. Focus on organomegaly. So another guiding principle is that in the exam, it's always good to have a system for giving answers. For example, if the examiner asks you for causes of hepatomegaly, it's good to categorise your answers. So for example, you might choose categories such as infective or infiltrative or storage disorders and so on. Just try and give one or two examples for each category rather than trying to memorise really, really long lists and list your differential diagnosis in the order which makes sense for the patient you've just seen and also in the most common to least common. It's really important for the clinical exam to make sure that you've got a differential diagnosis ready for hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, hepatosplenomegaly and also common things like cirrhosis and portal hypertension. 
So just briefly, we'll go over some of the differential diagnoses for patients. So if presented with a child with hepatomegaly, you want to present your differential diagnosis. So I would order it as follows. Number one, storage disorders such as Gaucher's disease, Neumann-Pick disease, or glycogen storage disorders, or as a consequence of cystic fibrosis, or TPM. Two, obstructive causes, so these might be CCF. Other or rare causes, so these could be Wilson's disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin, or congenital hepatic fibrosis. Then there's a category that's unlikely that you'll actually see it in the exam, but it's always important to mention as it's really important in your clinical day-to-day -day practice. So these causes for hepatomegaly would be neoplastic causes, such as lymphoma, leukemia, or neuroblastoma, and infective causes, such as hepatitis A or B or EBV. So that's the differential diagnosis of hepatomegaly. So my differential diagnosis for splenomegaly for a patient in the exam would be, number one, hemolytic disorders. So these would be hereditary spherocytosis, sickle cell anemia, and thalassemia. Two, infiltration. An example of this could be Gaucher's disease. Three, disordered flow. So disordered flow from whatever reason, for example, portal hypertension, cirrhosis, or cardiac failure. Four, autoimmune causes, such as JIA or SLE. Another category which is unlikely in the exam but important are the same as before. So these are the neoplastic causes, cancer causes, i.e. leukemia or Hodgkin's disease, and then infective causes, such as EBV or in the returning traveller, malaria. So that's splenomegaly covered. So my differential diagnosis for hepatosplenomegaly for a patient in the exam would be, number one, infiltrative, such as cystic fibrosis, mucopolysaccharidosis, such as Hunter's or Hurler's syndrome. Number two, hematological, such as thalassemia, and other or rare causes, so that could be congenital hepatic fibrosis. Focus on obesity. Obesity is obviously really topical and often is present in children who have another chronic condition. It is right to comment sensitively about a patient's weight and it's particularly important in an abdominal station. And if you think that the child is overweight, mention that you would also additionally like to plot their BMI on the appropriate chart. Just to remind you, obesity is defined as a BMI above the 98th centile for age and sex. And the most common cause is basically eating too much and not doing enough exercise. So excess energy intake and reduced energy expenditure. Children with that kind of obesity are usually quite tall. You can, however, have really rare causes of obesity, such as endocrine or genetic causes. And you might find that those children, one, are the ones that come to the exam, and two, that they're actually normally of short stature and they may have dysmorphic features. So in my exam, obesity was a comorbidity for one of the patients I examined, and I wasn't really able to give a differential diagnosis for it, other than just saying that they probably ate too much and didn't do enough exercise. So here's a list of the rarer causes of obesity you might find in your patients. So these would be, one, 
genetic causes. So trisomy 21, Kleinfelter syndrome, Prader-Willi, I'm sure you could come up with a lot more. Number two, endocrine causes such as growth hormone deficiency, hypothyroidism, Cushing's syndrome, or obviously if you're treating with steroids, and oncological causes. So one example could be of a pituitary tumour, but I think you're probably more likely to see it as a side effect of steroids in children who are undergoing treatment for cancer. If you're asked about investigations of any child in any of the stations, it's always best to give your answer to the examiner in a structured manner. So the structure that I have is of bedside tests, blood tests, imaging, and then special or other tests. And I'm sure that's familiar to lots of you. So for investigation of a child with obesity, this could be bedside tests, such as a blood pressure reading, a blood sugar, or a urine dipstick. Blood tests, such as thyroid function, fasting glucose, lipids, and HbA1c. Imaging, you might want to consider a CT head or an abdominal ultrasound scan of the liver. And then special tests, such as for growth hormone or IGF-1 and insulin levels. So in and among the advice you would give to your patients about being healthy, exercising and eating well and five a day, a really good interactive resource is a Change for Life app, which you can just point and click at foods in the supermarket and it will tell you instantly how many cubes of sugar that food has and it also gives you the traffic light rating for the individual foods. Focus on glycogen storage disease. So unfortunately for you, the first time you might meet a patient with a glycogen storage disease may be in the exam itself. Try as much as you can and get to a specialist metabolic clinic if there's one in the area that you work in. Just as a very brief refresher, glycogen storage disease type 1 is also von Guerich's disease and is the most common one going. It is autosomal recessive and it's caused by reduced glucose 6-phosphate activity. It presents early in life with low blood sugars and or asymptomatic hepatomegaly. On examination in the exam, you might see a child who is short, who's got a doll-like face, who's got hepatomegaly as an accumulation of glycogen and fat, and they may also have a large kidney. This syndrome is often associated with an intellectual disability, and although the examiner shouldn't be asking you about management, the main problem these kids have is of hypoglycemia. And therefore, if a patient becomes unwell, they may need additional sugar. So they might need overnight glucose infusions or continuous feeds. And some of the older children might be prescribed cornstarch. Obviously, it's one of those conditions where you need long-term monitoring. And the things that you're undertaking your surveillance for is for the development of renal stones, of hepatoma, so liver cancer, and of platelet dysfunction. There are obviously other glycogen storage diseases and I'm not gonna go through them all, but they in general give you hepatomegaly and possible developmental delay. Often they progress to cirrhosis and sometimes you might also find them associated with a myopathy or a cardiomyopathy. So if you think about those general concepts, you probably will be able to come up with a good way of investigating and managing these children in your outpatient clinic. Focus on portal hypertension. Portal hypertension isn't something we see very commonly in peds, but you may find a patient in the exam 
So it's important to remind yourself of the key features. The main feature of portal hypertension is splenomegaly. And the other thing that's really important to remember is that it doesn't necessarily mean that the liver is failing. So in a child who's got portal hypertension, you might find the following signs. You might find, well, you, you definitely will find splenomegaly. You may find that they are thin or have reduced muscle bulk. You may find they've got cutaneous portosystemic shunts visible. So these would be, the one you can see would probably be a caput medici, but that child might also have hemorrhoids and they might have esophageal varices. You may find abdominal distension caused by ascites, and you may or may not find hepatomegaly. The serious consequence, as I'm sure you remember, is of GI hemorrhage from esophageal varices. These children also might have encephalopathy, and because they have splenic enlargement, may have evidence of hypersplenism. So this would be thrombocytopenia, anemia, and leukopenia. Very quickly, the differential diagnosis of portal hypertension you could divide into prehepatic, hepatic and post-hepatic causes. And if we just plug a couple of things into that structure, we've got prehepatic or obstructive causes, such as portal vein obstruction, hepatic causes, so these could be cirrhosis, cancer of some description, congenital hepatic fibrosis, and then post-hepatic, so this could be bud chiari malformation or right ventricular failure. Just a note on congenital hepatic fibrosis, this is an autosomal recessive condition and you might get a child with a really large hard liver and a large spleen secondary to the portal hypertension that's developed from the cirrhosis and you may also find a polycystic kidney. Focus on cirrhosis. Again, we're gonna do a really brief differential diagnosis of cirrhosis to help you with your revision. And so we can divide the causes of cirrhosis into the following categories. Number one, biliary tract disorders such as biliary atresia or congenital hepatic fibrosis, CF, sclerosing cholangitis. Two, genetic causes such as alpha-1 antitrypsin or Wilson's disease or also glycogen storage disease. Three, nutrition such as being on PN for a long time. And four, infective causes, unlikely in your exam, but important to remember. So these are Hep B, Hep C and CMV. So well done for getting through all of that. There's a lot of information in there. You might find it helpful to go back and listen to the differential diagnosis of a variety of different signs you might find in the abdominal station. My thanks to Dragon Bites for hosting this podcast. Make sure that you check out the London School of Peds MRCPCH videos. And don't forget to download the Change for Life app as well. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts. And remember, you can download a worksheet from the website for more info on this episode and test your knowledge with our abdominal pub quiz. Thanks all for listening and see you next time for more MRCPCH revision. <laughs>